I was able to find evidence that corroborated the slamming of a dog to the ground, the blunt force trauma, the hanging on changes on the bones that showed all of this trauma. And as I had told Mike Gill, I had been finding evidence of dog fighting all the way to the bones because they're biting so hard and they're grabbing and they're holding. Mm. And it, I was able to find those characteristics we see associated with dog fighting on the bones. And so it proved everything. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, we go on a deep dive into the dark side of humanity as I'm joined by veterinary forensics expert, Dr. Melinda Merck. Dr. Merck is the owner of Veterinary Forensics Consulting in Austin, which supports law enforcement by tackling crime scene investigation, as well as the examination of live and deceased victims. She helps with large-scale operations, including exhumations of burial sites and examination of skeletal animal remains. She frequently testifies as a veterinary forensic expert for cruelty cases around the country, including the high-profile and and successful conviction of NFL player Michael Vick. The fearless Dr. Merck, a Michigan State University vet graduate, also trains veterinarians, attorneys, and police officers on the use of veterinary forensics in the investigation and prosecution of animal cruelty cases, plus the important link between this and domestic violence. She serves on the Wasava Animal Wellness and Welfare Committee, is a past president of the Board of Directors for NAVC, and is a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. Plus, my favorite to last, is a member of the International Association of Blood Stain Analysts. If you're thinking Dexter right now, I suspect you're not alone. In addition to her incredible list of accolades, Dr. Merck is the author of Veterinary Forensics, Animal Cruelty Investigation, and the co-author of Veterinary Forensic Investigation of Animal Cruelty, a guide for veterinarians and law enforcement. Now, just before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Vetex Leaders Training Group. If you're a manager in or an owner of a vet practice and people are your biggest challenge, then Vetex Leaders was designed for you. The program is a complete personnel management system where you will learn how to create vision and strategy, hire effectively and lead your team so you can create a positive culture that brings results. This is a unique deep dive into the world of high performance where I will be your personal mentor throughout. There are four modules supported with weekly live training sessions and toolkits to ensure you bring your plans to life and take back control of your practice. To learn more and apply, head to vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Now back to the show. This interview ranks as one of my favorite interviews on so many levels. If you are not drooling with excitement at what is in store in the next hour, then I recommend you immediately check your pulse. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with the brilliant... Dr. Melinda Merck and the fascinating but quite creepy world of veterinary forensics. Okay, so welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection Podcast. Before I introduce our wonderful guest today, in the Hyatt Hotel, and I always like to set the scene because the podcast nobody can see what we can see, but it is a beautiful day here in Florida. Uh, I can see it for miles, a like really clear day, looking out over the Everglades and some nice lovely water in the distance. Not a cloud in the sky that I can see. So the scene is set really well to have an awesome day at VMX. And we're going to kick that day off having a brilliant conversation with Dr. Melinda Merck. So welcome to the podcast, Melinda. Oh, thank you for having me. First of all, before we go, like you were not on my radar till about three days ago when um, double-time podcast guest Dr. Sheila Robertson 
and I were co-presenting in the Wasava, the animal welfare stream, which was great. So thank you very much for having me on that. And she told me about our moderator. And then she said, you should have her as a podcast guest. And I can't do <laughs> Sheila's voice because although she's Scottish, her accent is, you know, somewhere between this completely mid-Atlantic accent <laughs> that Sheila has. So I'm not even going to attempt that. But she said, you should totally interview Melinda on the podcast. And I said, oh, why? Tell me more. And then she told me more. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Why did I not know about you before? I'll let you introduce your like, little bit more. Uh, obviously, we've, we've introduced you a bit in the intro. But tell people what it is you do. We'll dig into that in a lot more detail. But just in your own words, what is it you do? What's your title? This is an unusual job. It is an unusual field and it's growing actually, but I'm a forensic veterinarian. And what I do is primarily consult or respond to cases involving animals, legal cases to answer legal questions. It may be criminal, it may be civil, it may be working with prosecutors versus defense to consult. So I'm analyzing the animals, the cases, the case information, and a lot of times the crime scene information. That sounds, and I'm going to have a ton of questions about that because, you know, we talk about things like having compassion fatigue and, and we're seeing stuff in coming in veterinary clinics that is generally, you know, animals are disease states, but not animals that are. You must see some very, very challenging things in the course of your work. I do. And, and it, that wellness that whatever you're going to do for yourself, it can become very tricky. And also with interpersonal relationships, like how do you tell anybody or share your day? Right. And you must have certain legal constraints around what you could even share. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. So it can be isolating, but you typically can discuss things with the team that you're working with as far as like the investigators. So you form relationships, sometimes long-term you right, know, with right. the investigators and prosecutors. Yeah. I have a group of prosecutor friends. I sit on the Animal Advisory Council, Animal Cruelty Advisory Council for the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. We call ourselves a tribe. <laughs> so that's our tribe. Right, so right, we can right. constantly text, reach out, uh, whatever our day is going on, because that's safe, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of, that's like your, your little support network. Okay, so I'm going to come on and I'm going to have a lot of questions about that, because this is an area that I was aware of, but not deeply aware of but it seems very very fascinating for many many reasons let's backpedal a little bit and just give us a bit of background like how did you wind up like did, did you go into vets going like hey i'm compl- i'm gonna get the bad guys from day one <laughs> like, i'm gonna put on my superhero cape and get yeah. after those people or how did it work out how did you end up in this line you know i don't know i know that part of it is my upbringing i'm originally from texas and was raised with parents that instilled values of doing the right thing no, mm-hmm. without consideration, no matter what it is, and giving, yeah. right? And so that service, which I think attracted me to the veterinary medicine field as well. You know, I was always impacted if I saw a commercial where, you know, we need to feed the hungry children or since I was little. And um, when I was in vet school way back when and uh, graduated in 88, but we really didn't even separate and focus on cats as separate small animals. And that really bothered me. So I ended up really going and learning more about cats, focused on cats. I realized there was a lot of veterinarians that didn't even want to work with cats. You know? Yeah. It seems like whenever I saw a need, it would change my career or change my focus. Yes. And so I ended up opening a feline practice. Okay. 
before we jump into that, um, you mentioned your parents and the values that they instilled. As a parent myself, and I know many of the listeners are parents, I wish to do the same things. And sometimes I am at a lot. I sometimes think, am I instilling? Why am I instilling? What values am I instilling? I know what I want to be instilling in there, but am I? When something has been that influential in taking you in a direction in your career, it highlights the importance of that. But did your parents, you know, how did they instill those values into you? Were there any specific things? I think in general, I, you know, I was involved in sports. I'm trying to think. I remember my takeaway from it is that I never thought there wasn't anything that I could do. No matter, and even if it was risky, that worst case scenario is you get up and do it again. Right. It, so it was more of that it's important to do the right thing in that it's okay to take risk and it can be safe to take risk. It, right. the, evaluating your worst case scenario. Yep. And doing this work is risk, right? You're putting yourself out there to a public eye or you know, even safety you can worry about at times. And it's like, what? how big of that factor is it really? And does it outweigh the importance of doing the right thing? Right, so you're putting yourself in harm's way in the line of work that, that you're doing, perhaps more than some of our our regular day-to-day veterinary stuff would be. It can be. You know, I've had cases where the defendant was a police officer. So what risk are you taking? Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. Okay. So hopping back into it, what did you want to be when you were, when you were, you know, you go into vet school, do you have any ideas about that? What what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, since I was little, I always wanted to be a veterinarian. So I always knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. So that was a pathway. Where did that thought come from for you? I have no idea. We found it in kindergarten. Something I wrote in kindergarten. Have no idea. Oh boy! So there was, there was mm-hmm. like so maybe even a time you don't remember. There was evidence from back then. Isn't that fascinating? It is evidence that yeah. was the word I used there as well. <laughs> but it was just it was just something ingrained in there. You know, as you move through your undergraduate education, did you ever have any moments where you had any doubt about that, or were there, you know, were there any challenges you had to overcome on the way? Oh, geez. Second year of vet school, it was just, I think we called it the weed out years or to get everybody who's going to make the cut. And I thought, you know what, I think I'll go into radiology on the human side. I even actually checked into it. But I think it was more of just that turmoil that happens, you know, somewhere during school. But I I love veterinary medicine. I loved animals, Mm -hmm. you know, so I didn't want to deviate from that. We hear a lot nowadays about pressure that students seem to be suffering with for one reason or another seems exponentially higher than when I went to university. I remember us being stressed around exam time, but I remember us being in the pub quite a lot and having quite a lot of fun and university being the days of your life, really. And everyone saying, look, enjoy this because it's going to get real when you get out on the other side. Now I hear about all these kids that are really struggling and, you know, showing up and having to get medications at university and things that seem, frankly, like really sad or scary things to hear when you sort of were thinking oh I don't know about this what was it that pushed you that direction and then how perhaps more importantly did you were there tools or was there a talk with yourself or how did you get yourself back through that moment you know I think what pushed me into that I distinctly remember it was some really tough courses the curriculum was really tough during that time And it, it wasn't like I failed anything because I always got the good grades. But I was like, you know, I, 
at what point when you start to feel like they're making it impossible like right you know and not helping you not in of course when i went to school we don't have the support systems they offer students now and i also knew a lot of people who were in the medical field and or in school for medicine and in law school yep so i think you know contrasting where they were in their second year and what was going on with them i was like is it worth it Were they also really, having a hard time? Was not as similar? hard, no, not okay. as hard. So you start you so, that balance, uh, right? So you it, was start, compa- it was a comparison exactly. outside of your own field. Yeah, it's not about money. I knew I didn't want to see people all the time, you know. Um, so I thought radiology would be safe, minimize sh- yeah. shooting gamma radio. <laughs> yeah. um, I think what, you know, and I I know a lot of people who are on curriculum committees at universities and admissions and talk to students. One of the things that was dropped that I think has hurt admissions is not requiring a certain amount of time and hours before admission that they spend with a variety of different veterinary practices and types of practices. Because I think expectations is one of the main frustrations that new graduates have is what's the real world like. And I think the more that they know that ahead of time and have that realism throughout their practice or throughout their training, through their education, I continued to work at veterinary practices on weekends and during the summer. I was wanting to apply what I was learning as I was going along and keep that learning process going. And so my transition then graduation was a lot easier, Mm. right? We talked about expectation management and the importance of that before we we started the recording. And in the United Kingdom, or certainly, and I, I must always remember that this wasn't yesterday. It was 22 years ago this June for me when I graduated from vet school. But your grades, almost as important with your grades at the time, there were three things that were very important. One was obviously your academic performance. But there was no way, given the competition to get in, that you were going to get in unless you had done enough dairy practice enough you know if you'd not shoveled enough crap out of the the <laughs> buyers of the, the horse shit you know the horse the stables you know if you didn't come home to your family and get ostracized because you stank of pig crap so badly after three showers you know you, if you couldn't tell that story you just weren't going to get in so that i had assumed was something that was kind of across the board but it, i get the sense that that actually it's much more geared towards academic prowess or that GPA as you say and I had a conversation yesterday with somebody who she said she had to get a a GPA and I think it was of um, 3.9 or something like that or 3.3 maybe I'm getting the number wrong there (laughs) it sounds like a crazy GPA with the expression just built but it it, it was it was a consistently high one or it was a high one but it it was measured in three separate ways and you had to get that score regardless of what way they measured it And so she made the score in two ways. She did not on a third and she missed it by like 0.1 and she was rejected from the program. Now, what I know of this young lady, particularly what I know of her father, who's an excellent veterinarian, whose love of the profession and desire to want to help is so strong that his, you know, in a time when you hear so many veterinarians that would steer their children away from going into the career, here's his daughter running toward the sound of gunfire. She, She wants to be part of this. And she's got a mentor for life there and her father and a role model. And when you hear of that sort of person being rejected from what outwardly is perceived as a very academic career, you do wonder, 
what tomorrow holds if that's not part of the problem. Do you have a sort of sense of an opinion on that? Absolutely. What are we looking for in veterinarians and what are we missing? For those of us that have been out for a while, we're not necessarily happy, at least in the United States, with what they're delivering. The product. Right. From, yeah. So something's failing. And what I think they're failing on goes back to the what the focus of academics does. You're not getting a whole well-rounded person. You know, you mentioned when you were in school, I was social chairman. We were at the pubs. Absolutely. Right? And right, I felt right. that that was critical to have that balance, that outlet. I had classmates that never left their apartment throughout the entire four years of vet school. And socially, their social skills, social interaction, not good. Suffered. You know, you see the divorces or the no relationships, no friendships, not being able to maintain that. And what happens when you have the requirements on academics that is more extremely high level that they've got to get? Well, how do they get that? They have to buckle down. They have to study all the time and devote all those time and energies to maintain or get those grades. But at what cost? And is that really a reflection of knowledge? Because sometimes testing is not a reflection of knowledge. I can actually speak to that because I took a course on how to take the medical entrance exam. I took a course on how to take it. I was tested on uh, subjects that I had never taken, but I learned how to take a test. Had no reflection on knowledge. I think we need to focus on that person, what matters, their drive, their belief systems, their, are they gonna have, be able to make it through. To have a father and a practice, a mentor, and that woman's uh, family and to be rejected over those little things and there should be gray areas right right i remember when i applied we had to write an essay and it was uh, part of the interview process and it was spontaneous you didn't know what the question was going to be so you couldn't prepare and it was like what event in your life impacted or changed your life i thought that was a great question because it gives you insight to that person and how they communicate right right so i think we're focusing on the wrong things in any of the disciplines, not just veterinary medicine, and what we're requiring of them is causing a personal sacrifice that's going to come out later, and we see it. We right. see veterinarians that are uncomfortable in dealing with clients. They already tend to be more introverted in general, and we're not requiring that from them. No. Right? We're not addressing that skill set in any way. Right. I feel like now I have to flip that question around on you because it is a great question. So mm. I'm, I'm going to like flip it back on you and say, so what impact? And was there a yeah. thing in your life happened that impacted you the most? Yeah, it was when I was in middle school and we had to write a paper. This is really going to date me. <laughs> but you had to write a paper using a minimum, I think it was three different sources. So yep. you could use magazines. You could go to the library and use the library cards, you know, for Dewey Decimal System to find things, but you had to source it from different things. So it could be newspapers, so microfiche and whatever. So I'm at the library and this is, it's so telling all the papers I ever wrote in my life, what they were about, because they were the Jim Jones Guyana massacre, the cover up of the JFK assassination. <laughs> like, like my parents should have known what was going to start happening when I grew up. So this one was going to be on the Kent State right. massacre, uh, which was for those who don't know, it was in the 70s. It was surrounding the protest of the Vietnam War, and students were protesting, and they 
National Guard was called in, there was confrontations, there was peaceful sit-ins and all that, but it exploded. And four people were shot and killed, I think. I, I don't remember exactly now. But, so I'm in there researching it. My dad had dropped me off at the library and I'm in the microfiche room looking at it. And this guy's in the room and he, and remember, I'm in middle school, so he turns to me, he's like, what are you doing? What are you researching? And I tell him, and there's a famous photo of a man, uh, long hair with a headband on, and he's holding a white flag of surrender, yep. right? And he said, go back to that. And he said, that's me. Wow. So it was the guy, and he was shot. He was, And he showed me where he'd been shot through the wrist. And so we sat there for a long time, and he gave me a firsthand account. Right, so you got a testimony, not just Exactly, a- of what happened. Not what was printed, which was different than what was printed in the papers. Uh-huh. And that really raised my awareness and critical thinking. Don't believe everything that's said on TV or through media or whatever, and or told. But I was, I was blown away. Of course, I got an A on the paper, but yeah, just fortuitous. Oh, there's so many ways we could go with this. So (laughs) what were your most important learnings from that? Obviously, that had a big impact on you. You got a great grade, but why was that so impactful? Can you dissect down the, if you had to bullet list the things that that taught you that have shown up to be helpful or impactful or, or just true in your life? There's several things because I had chosen that story for a reason because I'm like, these students were having a voice. They were trying to have a voice. They were trying to be heard in a peaceful way, trying to do it in some form that would have some kind of impact. What the police community, the general community, being afraid of that, right? Of that peaceful protest, how it can change in a moment where there's now violence, Mm. what those triggers can be. To me, it was fascinating, but it also, as a social consciousness kind of thing, was like, wow, where do we go wrong on this, right? And why, right? Was it people that just didn't like the hippie generation or anti-gun violence, which is still going on now? So I think, I'm like, you know, that when we talk about risk-taking, that was tremendous risk, right? But they, their belief system overpowered that risk, right? It was more important to do what they thought was the right thing. Right. Right. You set out just to write a paper there, but you've just, you've just come face to face with a first-hand account, someone's version of the truth, whether, you know, I don't suppose we know if it's the real truth because everyone's subjective, aren't we? Yeah. But it's almost that, I'm getting that sense of seeking out the truth being such an important foundation, you know, keystone to your like your character, your being. Yeah. As mattering. But you put yourself in a position of being able to experience that moment as well by getting after it and doing the work that was required. And I don't know where this question's going. Sometimes <laughs> it just wanders like this. But you wonder if you were sat researching this on your computer at home on Google, that moment would never have happened. You know, you were in the right place at the right time, which Exactly. Right. And what is it they say about, you know, luck is preparedness meets, you know, the moment the thing but without you you had the preparedness you were there yeah i don't think there's a question in there but just super like interesting to observe that and what a pivotal moment in your career so let's dig into that career a, a little bit could you just expand for us what is it what is the the field of veterinary forensics where did it start where where is it going why does it matter 
it seems to have started when I started doing the work, at least in the United States. The Coopers out of the UK were doing wildlife forensics, right? That had actually been going on for a while, trying to save the wildlife, trying to fit poaching, who killed whatever animals, who's, you know, removing the horns of the rhinoceros. And so they made huge strides in that area. And of course, the federal agencies had supported that but no one was really doing anything in small animal or or, uh, non-wildlife I should say and the Monroe's published papers in 2000 they're doing the survey out of the UK and that was the first publications yep what what were those papers they were called the batter pet syndrome okay and there was a series of four papers that were published by Hill Monroe and Thrustfield and I remember at the time I wrote an article for my blog which was based on some Scottish SSPCA work, which showed the link between animal abuse and domestic violence. I remember writing a blog on that in about 2001, 2002, perhaps. I can't remember. That would have been right when those papers came out. It might have been based on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think he was out of Glasgow. Yeah. I think, or no, I think maybe it was Edinburgh. A name like that wouldn't come as a surprise. Yeah, yeah. So it was Ronald Monroe and his wife Helen were both pathologists doing the kind of work, and they've actually published a book with their stuff. So it turned out veterinary forensics is using, like I said, our veterinary knowledge to answer legal questions. People were working on cases, but we really weren't, there was nothing published really and organized and so forth. And I realized I'm like veterinarians, they're more reluctant to do something if they don't have a book on the shelf, you know, or if they, that they can reference. Yeah. So that was, that was part of the beginning of developing veterinary forensics. And really what happened is I just started doing cases, being asked to do cases. I was reporting animal cruelty and doing them. And I worked with a crime scene investigator who was an animal cruelty investigator together. We just started figuring things out. Like what on the forensic side would work on an animal case. Okay. And it, that's what kind of launched everything. Early in my career, I remember I started in Newcastle in the northeast of England, and we have the RSPCA in the United Kingdom or in, in England and Wales. And I remember the inspector coming in, and he would bring in various cases. And I was a new graduate, so they tossed all of those cases at me. And I remember two things. One, them being quite good fun. And two, you know, I got to do work that nobody else would have gotten to, I wouldn't have gotten to do because that case wouldn't have been done by me, but I was cheap (laughs) as well (laughs) as the new graduate. But I also remember ending up having, you know, take notes and do all sorts of things which seemed, and then end up going to court and which was totally terrifying. And actually remains one of the most terrifying experiences today of like, okay, don't, just don't say anything you're not asked (laughs) to say yes, no, and to keep it to the facts and try not to flap your gums. <laughs> was, that was the advice I was given and then That's kicked onto the stand yeah, and I'm in front of a, yeah. you know, I think it was a, a magistrate and I'm like, yes, my lord. I'm like, do you say your honor? Do you say my lord? I'm like, I curtsy. I'm really, it was a, it was it a is very dread- intimidating to right, go into this. Dread- yeah. The professional witness thing is a dreadful mess. So that, that wasn't, that wasn't a career that, that I ended up going down. But so I'm really curious about, so the things you've developed, talk me about, can you talk us through like a maybe a day in the life, and then I would love for you to articulate some of the cases you've seen and some of the work you've done because it sounds like you've done some really impactful stuff. But day in the life, let's start there. On the development side, or just a day in the life? Just a day in the life, a like of, life. of the of the veterinary you forensic know, 
pathologist. Oh, yeah. For, and, and is that even the right term? Well, it? I'm not a pathologist, but I do gross necropsies. And then there's, we really don't, we don't have veterinary forensic pathologist, really. We have veterinary pathologists that are doing forensic work. Got it. Right? So the, we don't have that as a specialty. Yeah. Too niche. And, and there's not there's not a demand. There's not a sustainable demand for that. So I think that's why we all need to be cross-trained in doing, handling a legal case. So a day in my life, well, I primarily do consulting. I may get called to a case, like if there's a large-scale case for like a hoarding situation or a puppy mill, those are planned to execute warrants. So I may get involved in the planning and examination and documentation of all those animals and examination of any of the deceased. Most of my work is I get cases sent to me and it may be a prosecutor or it may be an investigator or sometimes it's veterinarians or it may be a defense attorney. But since I've been at VMX, I got a uh, email from a detective who is trying to get ready to interview these suspects and they had this kitten brought in with all these very bizarre burns mm. and burn patterns and they've already given three different stories to the uh, staff there so before she goes in to interview she was like what do you think this is so my goal with that was to analyze those patterns to say is it consistent with or not consistent with the stories they've already told right right and then help her potentially lock them into a story that it couldn't be. Yep. And then that helps the case. Got it. Right. Then sometimes I'm examining the weirdest one was I got flown to another city to do a necropsy on a dog that involved a suspected fatal dog attack, but they thought it might've been a homicide and they used the dog to cover up the evidence of the homicide. Oh, so they wanted to contaminate the scene of the crime with other forensic material that would confuse this, the matter? Right, is that- and have dog, we've heard about this before where people have tried to get, they had their dog like attack part of the body to try to cover up in that area where there may have been evidence of the homicide. Uh, or I see, a stab wound. Or, yeah, or, yeah. you know, strangulation or, yeah. you know, anything. So that one was really interesting because we worked with the, homicide detective and the medical examiner and we're all looking at crime scene photos and necropsy photos and autopsy photos and brainstorming for hours about the story what could or could not have happened what part of that story that the husband said is really true that's really that's kind of incredible stuff so maybe i mean you've been involved in some pretty big cases but what cases have you been involved in that have been the most either influential on society or impactful or have ma- that you feel personally because i get the sense that making a difference matters deeply to you yeah what cases have you been involved in and are you able to talk about those without any fear of retribution that matter the most to you yeah i think it's the uh, the football player michael vick case i think on many levels it was influential and impactful and there were a lot of things that were going on behind the scenes, both on a political nature, the board of directors for the organization I work for, there's pressures from all these different things. Paint the picture. So, so yeah. Michael Bick, senior 
player within the NFL, National Football League, playing for, what team did he play for? He, at the time, it was the Atlanta Falcons. Okay, and so, I was living, funny story, Yep. I was living in Atlanta and I didn't even know who he was because he wasn't my football team. <laughs> Mine is the Dallas Cowboys, so I didn't, I didn't know who he was. But he was the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. Okay. Yeah. All right. So massive profile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the richest sports on the planet. Okay. Back to you. What happened? What, like, what was the... I mean, and again, I'm sure everybody in America knows this. We've kind of got a bit of a global audience here. Sure. So, so what, what was the case? What was the problem? What happened was, this is how the case came about. He lived in Atlanta in a very nice house. He also had a property in Surrey, Virginia, that he had dogs and was fighting there that no one knew about, right? What happened is he also had other people living at that house. He would occasionally visit, one of which was his cousin. His cousin is driving a vehicle in an, another county or nearby. He gets pulled over on a traffic stop by a canine officer. And a canine dog named Troy gets out. They run the sniff test around the car, and the dog alerts to drugs. Right. So then he gets arrested for you know the drugs or whatever and he's talking and he says well i live in michael you know i live in this house michael vick's house and blah 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 so they went and got a search warrant for the house based on the drugs that were in the car they go to execute the search warrant and that's where they see all the dogs and stuff for dog fighting so then they go get another search warrant for that right and their animal control everything all on the local level right this is all local level law enforcement responding to all of this when they see the dogs. Fast forward, so now it's a dog fighting investigation. This is a rural area. Yep. And so the local officials are not really keen on pursuing a case against the famous Michael Vick is the bottom line. Right. right? So there was a because lot that's of... going to get expensive or... And hey, he's living in their town. They like him or for whatever... So kind of fill in the gaps like for whatever political reasons from the sheriff to the da's office they were putting up blockades to advance the case the deputy investigator from the sheriff's department he contacts the feds he contacts the u.s attorney's office because he sees what they're doing and he's worried about the integrity of the case and that it's going to get dropped u.s attorney gets involved, and this never happens, but the feds take the case away from the local. Because we have an informant that actually saw these dogs get killed that had not performed during a dogfighting test, Mm -hmm. and they were buried, and they were killed in horrific fashions. So we had an informant, an eyewitness. So the U.S. attorneys get involved in their FBI, their investigation team, and they execute a warrant. I don't know anything about this. I've been peripherally involved talking to the deputy investigator at the local level. Feds go and they exhume the bodies yep. and then they remove a tooth yep. and then they put the bodies back in the ground. And then they call, the deputy called me that night and he told me what they did. And I was like, you did what? Why? Why would you have done that? Right? Why would you have done that? So he said, what do you mean? And so I talked him through what you just reburied evidence like we could find evidence potentially of how they killed them and certainly of dog fighting he said stay by the phone you're going to get a call and the u.s attorney mike gill called me and he said tell me about what you can do 
And so I told him I, what the potential evidence that we could find, even on skeletal remains, mm-hmm. decomposed remains, that would be evidence of dogfighting, potentially hanging, and in blunt force trauma. I, I said, I don't know, but you just took a tooth out of them just to confirm that they were a dog. That's all they did. So that was my... So you could add so much more texture right. to the case that their bit of the puzzle was, yes, there were dead dogs buried there, ergo there must have been something happening nefarious you're like no there was blunt force trauma to the skull this this dog did not die of natural causes and our informant it's always important for two reasons even because he wasn't charged with animal cruelty he was charged with dog fighting he and his four or yeah four co-defendants or three co-defendants he it plays in public opinion when animals die Mm. from animal cruelty also, we have an informant. So if I can find corroborating evidence of what he says happened, which was the hanging, the blunt force trauma, and that they had been fought, then that would support, give him credibility as a witness, yes. as a statement. Yes. And that was the goal, right? And that's why it's important. That was my um, introduction into how the FBI works through investigations, which is very intense, very thorough, so that's how I got involved. We They said, okay, we're going to get another search warrant. And we went out there, I think it was a month, about four or five weeks later, and we re-exhumed the bodies. And I found out the night before that I was going to be in charge of the investigation team. Yeah, yeah. So we exhumed the bodies about four or five weeks later and had a huge team a SWAT team was there to execute the warrant because we knew people were still living there. It was it was very interesting. I was the only one without a gun. That was what I remember, the wow. only one. So we spent the day, we found the body, we re-exhumed the bodies, and then the U.S. attorney was involved the whole time, right? And I started looking around. He wasn't on scene, and I was looking around. And one of the things that I took it upon myself to get trained in was bloodstain patterns, analysis and crime scene investigation, primarily because we don't always get the support of crime scene forensic support on scenes. And I realized I needed to know a lot more. So I went and looking around and where they had been fighting the dogs in this building. And I started finding all these blood stains that were consistent with dog fighting. And the FBI had not processed that months before. And so we couldn't use that evidence because the house had been you know, we couldn't tie it to the original event. So that was interesting. The bodies get transported by two agents. They didn't leave. They drove through the night. They never stopped anywhere. So there was continuity of the custody of the evidence. And they bring them to... How far did they get driven? It was a 14-hour drive to Atlanta. Oh yeah, boy. from yeah. Virginia to Atlanta. I think it was 12, 14 hours. And the U.S. attorney then, when this is all going on, he's like, I don't want you examining those bodies like over at the shelter where you do work or at a hospital. He said, I don't want anybody's eyes on this at all. He was very good about keeping it very tight, the circle of anybody who had knowledge because he controlled this case very well, which is what ultimately led to the success. So I had to hurry up and fly back because now I had to set up my garage in the middle of the summer. It was very hot. I was going to have to do all the necropsies and the skeletal remain processing in my garage. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm running around to the stores trying to find stainless steel table, you know, uh, air, some kind of portable air conditioner. Right. Yeah. So I had to do it all in my home. 
Oh boy, that must have been uh, yeah. harrowing for all concerned. My animals were not happy with the smells they could smell. So I processed all the skeletal remains, and that because that was key, I did. I was able to do three necropsies. I was able to find evidence that corroborated the slamming of a dog to the ground, the blunt force trauma, the hanging on changes on the bones that showed all of this trauma. And as I had told Mike Gill, I had been finding evidence of dog fighting all the way to the bones because they're biting so hard and they're grabbing and they're holding. Mm. And it, I was able to find those characteristics we see associated with dog fighting on the bones. And so it proved everything. So he was very excited. <laughs> that was very exciting. Yeah, he was very excited. And they used that, that I wrote up the reports and that what was amazing is those reports are what forced uh, several of the pleas for them to plead guilty because we proved it. Yeah, right. And then, oh, the plaintiffs, I thought you said the police there. Right, yeah, so yeah. The, the plaintiffs pled guilty. So that just, that just toppled the dice. Yeah. Massive impact. That was such a high-profile case. How did you feel as you were going through that? And were there impacts on you personally for going through that? Because I can imagine there's not just one or two people fight dogs. And this is kind of a big deal thing. And now you actually become a, a bit of a threat to a community, as it were. They worked hard to not have my name associated with the case. Yeah. So that I wouldn't become a focus. Yep. Even then, I think some people knew... And then I'm in the same city, right, where he's at or whatever. Right. But um, again, it's that risk management. What I should do as a veterinarian anyways, yep. you know, I should take certain precautions. Right. You know, I didn't have identifiers on my vehicle, like put Michael Vick in jail sticker on my car, you know, something <laughs> like that. So that they could know anybody could trail my car. And it's the same precautions I would do just as a single woman living alone. Right. 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 Got it. I felt okay. I got offered if I wanted security. I'm like, I... They rarely come after the medical professional on any type of crime. Right. 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 They'll go after the judges or they'll threaten the prosecutors yep. or maybe detectives, but not me. But not you. Yeah. I really wasn't. They made sure I wasn't front and center and they kept it quiet, yep. which is what frustrated our board of directors for the organization that I worked for because they want to capitalize on it. But we were able to, at the end, really be able to come out with a much better story yep. and use it that way. It was... Very disturbing. Now, this is because we weren't allowed to talk about it. Yep. Every night, Jim North, who was the lead investigator, and Mike Gill and I would be on the phone talking. Yep. And we'd be, we'd be going, did you see? You know, It was always on the news. Yep. It never left our news, our national news. Every single night, it was on, on one of the major networks. networks. They talked about it. And that was why this was so impactful is because it never left. We timed it from July all the way pretty much till December when Vic pled guilty or got his sentencing. It was always in the news every day. So there was a lot of stories about dog fighting. It helped create awareness. People are talking about it, that it can be anybody. What was the outcome of the case? So he pled guilty. All of them pled guilty, all the defendants. And sentencing, I, I know like in, in the UK, the sentencing for animal attacks or animal cruelty cases sometimes just seem so incredibly lenient. Yeah. So yeah. what was the outcome in this case? Well, this was charged under the federal law had just changed, but he got arrested before that was changed. So this was really considered a 
gambling enterprise crossing state lines more like what we have is called a rico statute it's Mm -hmm. more after that is what he was charged under some pretty much most people got jail time except one guy who cooperated but vic was up for just six months probation right but the, the what he did is during that while they're deciding on the sentencing there's certain criteria they have to meet and conditions and he he failed a drug test and he did not cooperate with other investigations there were over 10 i believe it was over 10 different homicide investigations where his name came up as either an alibi or something and he didn't cooperate fully so that's how he ended up with six months in jail i think Mm. he got six months yeah and in the judge you want to talk about intimidation a federal court yeah oh my goodness very much with structure and our judge was known to move things along a no-nonsense judge and we found out later he owned um i think two bichon frise dogs so he was a dog lover but on the federal side they have guidelines And so it's a system, so it helps prevent some subjective areas. They have some um, areas to maneuver. Now we have an enhanced law. They can get longer. Um, We're seeing longer sentences. Yeah. Right. My understanding is that this individual is kind of now back, and there's another news cycle of the fallen hero or the, the the redemption story that seems like one of these narratives that pervades american culture you know the the hero the fall it's what the media want right am i right in thinking that's sort of where this conversation this particular story is heading or headed at the moment yeah they have um one of our nfl networks has brought him back as a commentator on some things where he graduated college they wanted to give him i think they did put him in their college hall of fame or something He's one of the co-captains of the Pro Bowl that's going to be coming up or something. And it's caused public outrage. Yeah. And there's viewpoints that maybe he's been redeemed or he's put his time in and that kind of thing. And, you know, there's varying opinions. And and I believe in redemption. I believe that people make mistakes and and should be able to redeem themselves. But they do have to earn it. And when we have something as powerful and as uh, popular as the NFL, of all the things that, all the role models, all the heroes that we really do have out there, yep. I don't think there's been enough about how bad that was yep. and, and enough to satisfy the animal lovers where he really believes what he did was absolutely wrong. It's not about just the dogfighting, it was the killing of him. Right. So that's where there is there is discourse. Right. Now, you, the course of your job, which sounds like, and we've heard from one case there, but, you know, the, the amount of work and the amount of, the, the things you have to see clearly are a level, I don't know if it's above or below is the right way of describing it, but just, you know, as veterinarians, we all see horrific injuries. Most of the things we see are either accidental injuries or hit by cars or, or disease processes or ignorance, not willful neglect or worse. You're seeing a different spectrum, a different part of the spectrum. Now, I know that, that increasingly we talk a bit more about caregivers suffering things like caregiver fatigue, but also PTSD from some of the stuff we have to see. And that has an impact on mental health. The stuff you're seeing is next level stuff. And just seeing, I'm sure it's not all this, but a proportion of it, seeing humanity with its dark side on. 
And I just wondered, do you have a routine or things in place that help you to, you know, how does that touch you? And how do you keep yourself, for want of a better phrase, you know, your head above water? Yeah, it is hard. For me, it's hard to write the report because the goal of the report is to articulate the animal's experience. So you have to tell the story. So I'm really in that empathy. You know, I've got to think about what was the animal experiencing? What would they have been expressing? What would someone have heard or seen? And so to me, that's the hardest, right? Is the consults looking at photos like it could be this. That's more analytical. That's solving the mystery like it could be this or that. But when I really got to talk about animal suffering, that's where it's hard. So how do I manage? Because it's how we manage as veterinarians. you got to compartmentalize, right? It's got to be put there. I make sure that I am not shouldering the whole burden for outcome, that I know that in my head, that I am not responsible for that outcome of this case. I'm doing my job. Let's see how much I can help them or advise so how I balance that is two th- well two things I'm doing now. I decided I'm going to learn fiddle. I went to Ireland and uh, loved it and found out that my paternal line and uh, maternal line are all violin or fiddle players. So I started learning fiddle uh, last year. So I, I travel with that. So I so make sure that I Irish practice. heritage that you have in your background. I must have or, it yeah, somewhere. Right. I've got to have it. Then I recently started doing virtual reality workouts. So I've got a headset that I travel with and I do boxing for an hour that goes on my so head. So you have the o- Oculus Quest I thing. have the Oculus That's Quest. Crazy. That That boxing game, you get pooped. So you have that as well? I, don't, I have a friend who has it and brought it around for the first time. Yes. Beat Saber. Yep. Discuss. Beat Saber. Yeah. That box VR. Oh. Yes, absolutely. It's a great workout. And there's some free, I haven't done it yet. There's an app where you actually get a pet. There's a some <laughs> creature that's your pet that you're supposed to take care of. So that's where I can completely tune out and I'm getting a workout in an hour and I can get that frustration out. That's, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. I, and I did not see that coming. <laughs> Are there any other things you do? Like, do you have any habits like we hear a lot about mindfulness, uh, journaling, anything there, or is no. it simply no? Because I'm not going to do. I'm not going to talk about. I'm, I, I don't want to journal about what my well, you're, those you, you've all, you've journaled already. What, what's there? Right, you? right. No, I will. I may text or in my I mentioned my tribe of of women who do this work. Right. right. So you've got and your s- pop off yeah. valve. And they were like, and then, so getting that understanding, just someone knowing what I'm going through without having to go into details. That's all I, you, I don't need to go through it again. Right. Excellent. Now, perhaps moving on to another area of, of work for you, Wasava, World Small Animal Veterinary Association. The track here, Sheila, you know, said, would you like to speak in that? And initially I thought, what, what on earth are you asking me for? Like I talk about management and leadership. And and I, I have to say, I, I want to shout out the, the piece of work. And, and I know Wasava does a, an awful lot of work. And I'm sure that I've learned a lot more about the organization having to do this presentation, which has been brilliant. So we were presenting the animal welfare guidelines or a, a discussion on whether they're necessary or not. And so I read those guidelines cover to cover on the on the flight on the way over and i was massively pleasantly surprised by what i read so i'm not going to ask you to summarize the document or anything there but why is it important that practices actually perhaps let's just take a step back can you tell us about your involvement with wasava 
as a sort of brief intro. And then perhaps, like, why are things like ethical welfare guidelines important for practitioners? Why are they not abstractions? So I'm the chair of the Animal Welfare and Wellness Committee for World Animal Vet Association. And the guidelines were important in just to create some kind of outline, at least beginning launching pad type of document for people in the veterinary community to start considering welfare, animal welfare in their daily lives, in their daily practice. Yeah. And I think that's why it's important. There's going to be different levels of practices throughout the world because the guidelines had to be created for an international community. Right. I think one of the strongest points of that is that ethical decision-making, those ethic considerations or ethical conflicts and ideas of how you could implement that, that simple things that you, you know, in our day-to-day practices, we're not even thinking about. You've got so many things going on in a practice. It's like, but small changes can actually improve emotional, mental welfare of the employees, right? No question about it. The document actually, it read as a very good, it wasn't an abstraction. It was very practically based, well-articulated, and then it leads into checklists that practices can have. And what I really liked about it and where I really started getting excited by it was when it moved into the, the toolkits that we have at our disposal to start resolving conflicts in the questions we ask and in the perspective shifts that we can bring and the empathy that we can perhaps bring to some of these challenging things that we have to deal with. So I, I really, I thought it was a, a really cool document. I wanted to ask you one bit, and I'm particularly because of your legal perspective, this question of animal sentience, this is something that I think is a, it's one of the peculiarities about America that there was such uproar at the thought of animals being described as sentient beings. Whereas, you know, in the EU, that's just, you know, of course they are. And I think, you know, I asked the question in the room, like who here thinks animals are sentient? Everybody put their hands up. So when AHA published in 2012 a position statement acknowledging the sentience of animals, everything went nuts over here. And then perhaps I can't ask you to speak for Wasava. I ask you to speak as, as you, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you're aware of your <laughs> affiliations and and uh, obligations and what have you. Like, how do you feel about it? Like, what, so first of all, are animals sentient in your opinion? Is that broadly held opinion of Wasava? And what was the conflict? Why were so many people up in arms? And, and really were so many people up in uh, arms? Because that surprises me. Or was this vested interest? What was or what's the, the story? Voice, right? The loudest uh, voice, right? The loudest voice. What's the story? So to answer yes and yes on the sentience and Wasava's position on that, the pushback, and it's crazy. I, I don't, you know, I'm like, there's scientific basis research, I mean, from Australia to New Zealand, out of Europe. I think UK has led the way on a lot of those welfare publications and scientific documentation, right? There's a book, Emotional, Mental and Emotional Well-Being of Animals that Frank McMillan edited. They're working on a new uh, version of that. I'm like, come on, even, but even the veterinarians, when you ask them, on the stand or did the animals suffer will hesitate. And so I have some theories about this, but as far as pushing back on the sentience, fear, ignorance, there's, you know, the lobbying groups from the farm animal side worried about 
you know, if they don't, if they get a skinny cow out there, they're going to be charged with animal cruelty as far as herd health. And, and so really bad, ignorant, fear-based responses, right? right? We're not, you got herd health going on, you got a skinny cow, you know, we're going to discuss it, right? It's not an automatic, you're going to be charged with animal cruelty. The fear from the veterinary community and what I was really disappointed is like, let's get AVMA, let's get the, the state veterinary medical associations to support this. This is a no brainer, right? right? Right. But then there's this fear like, well, if we make them more valuable, they're sentient then they're not property, we could be sued for more. Well, so, you know, if they're valued at more then there was all the worry that now our insurance are, is going to go up. Our liability insurance is going to, it's stupid. Mm. It was all fear-based, right? And so decisions made out of fear are stupid. never Usually good. bad right? decisions. Always bad. So what we're seeing is um, more embracing new generation of students or new grads. And we're seeing this change. We're seeing sentient property. Portland, Oregon, when I was out there for a conference, but Oregon has actually put sentience in their cruelty laws. Right. So we're seeing that change and embrace, and it's not making that impact. Right. 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 Uh, sentient property. Right. There is an advantage for an animal to be property, at least on a legal side, is because it makes seizure easier. If we right. make them like human children status, now we have to have foster homes. Now we have to, you know, it, we would have to have all those programs they have to have for children that are victims which of are, cruelty which clearly would be actually i say clearly perhaps in 20 years from now we would judge a statement like that as being like caveman like right right but in europe they're considered sentient but they're still considered property property so, so we can have that can you have can have both. you can have both they found the way to do it and then watching what europe's done mm. right and trying to bring that here in different ways and certainly we're having to talk about the sentience of animals in some way without saying sentience when we're testifying in court because we're talking about their experience. Right. Right. It's a fascinating thing. There's so many contradictions or and almost hypocrisies based around the way we ethically frame things. And there's a concept I, you know, that I was introduced to recently, which is sort of speciesist. You know, you're speciesist. And you see it, and I, and I thought, that's, what does that mean? And, I, and then I thought, actually, no, that's right. That a group of veterinarians can get so incensed on Facebook by puppy farms, which are arguably, arguably treated better than farm farms, yet we're quite happy to consume a bacon roll. There's a different Absolutely. way of thinking about species. And right. I'm just reminded of the Pulp yep. Fiction, you know, the conversation between John Travolta and... Um, and I'm completely blanking Samuel L. Jackson, yeah. where they're talking about pigs a filthy animal. You know, pigs sweep and root in their own shit. Pigs a filthy animal. You know, dogs got personality. Even you know, there's and it's and that's it's that's the fascination of that discussion playing outright. Again, I don't know. There's a question there, but I think it just pops in my head. How do you, do you see the hypocrisy? Like, how do you feel about? I do think that veterinarians have to have an answer for that right they have to have an answer their own personally not to anybody else they don't have to answer to anybody else but we need to be prepared to articulate is like are you a vegetarian are you vegan or there is happiness and ignorance <laughs> right do we want to know how they're transported do we want to know all those things do we want to believe those are one-offs right i think that 
you have to answer that. I've struggled. I've gone back and forth. I think nowadays it's easier to obtain food in a way that you can eat the way that you want or need to eat or philosophically want to eat. There's certainly more things. And again, I think that's going to be in another, you know, generation, but you're right. Specious. How do we answer that? Because we're, we're committed to not causing suffering, alleviating suffering and preventing suffering of animals. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to answer as a community, you know, as a profession. And yet here we all are. Well, look, this is, this is, I feel like I could talk for hours, but what I'm going to do is we're going to change gear and, and just wind up. We always okay. finish up with short form questions. Okay. So you can give them long or short answers. That doesn't matter, but they're intended to be reasonably rapid fire, but feel no obligation to stick to that. So okay. what's your superpower? What's my superpower? Wow. Being able to see short term and long term, that's the domino effect. Yeah, and re- ripple effects. Is that almost the the near up detail plus the the bigger picture? Yes, both. It's quite a rare a lot combination, of people, right? Most people are one or the other, That's right. and I, I can, yeah, both. Flip side of that, what's your kryptonite? Oh, Oculus that? Quest. <laughs> Oculus Quest. Yeah, that would be Oculus Quest. <laughs> yes, that's my kryptonite. If you could change one thing. I mean, more than anything else, if you, if you had the power to change anything in veterinary medicine, what would you change? Wow. If I could change like all the like medicine field or no, just one, one little thing that would, that, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to lead you to say to make things better, but yeah. one thing in the whole, one, one cog in the whole machine of veterinary medicine. If fear-free is required. That mm. that's a minimum standard. Mandatory. Mandatory. What's the best gift you ever gave or received and why? The best gift I gave was to my father for his 50th or it had to be his 60th birthday. Uh, He's a NASCAR fan and I bought him, he got to drive 20 laps on the Talladega ramp and people flew in from all over. So that was the best gift I ever gave that I've ever received. Oh, wow. I think it was my fiddle that my partner had heard me say that I you know, wanted to, and I got it for Christmas last year. How, so how, the, that was the best gift because it made me do it. So yeah. I, I was, I don't want to say taught, I want to say made. It's one of those instruments that, you know, I have three instruments, I've, there's four. There's the recorder, which is like every parent's scourge. I don't know if you do that across here, but it sounds awful. And it's like a glorified flute slash cat getting strangled noise that comes out of it. <laughs> Certainly when I play it, there was a fiddle, which I was made to play. And I think I could have enjoyed, but the teacher was horrible. Like, oh, I, I love doing that. So, <laughs> and and then piano and the teacher was crazy. And I, so I didn't enjoy that either. <laughs> then I finally picked up guitar and I wanted to do that. So I got quite good at that. How oh. are the fiddle lessons going? I have an excellent teacher. Yeah. That is one the place the fiddle place is actually one block from my house and he both his parents played music and so he and played violin and fiddle whatever so he's been playing 50 years and he just loves it he's retiring now from playing with a, i forget the scottish singer he's with and touring around so it's been nice at first 
I called it, it was a constant state of self-correction. That's what I called it. <laughs> that that <laughs> is I'm the like, kindest <laughs> definition I've ever heard of somebody <laughs> learning to play the fiddle. So I'm like, if I can get some things down, I, I have very uh, low expectations for each week accomplishments. So the, I can the keep The musical going. equivalent of tightrope walking. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> like seriously. Yeah, so it's been an experience. I played piano, so this was, I'm like, where? And then I played a little guitar, so my first shock was there's no frets on a fiddle. I didn't know that. I had no idea. Right, right. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Well, uh, good luck, Kinting. I just uh, I hope your experience is so much better than mine, because I enjoy hearing a fiddle well played. I, yeah. I just, it brings back memories of that, yeah. that teacher. What was the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice is what's the worst, always evaluate what's the worst that can be prepared for the worst case that can happen. And then it's like, okay, well, if, you know, it puts things in perspective, it helps give perspective on everything. Even in your line of work, how often does it turn out that that case you've prepared for is how it, does it frequently get to that worst case or is it you've planned for the worst, but usually things are a bit better than that? They're usually better. Yeah. Usually better. That was a lesson yeah. in fear management right yeah, there. Yeah, they're usually better. It's never as bad as you think it's going to be. Yeah. And what was the worst piece of advice you've ever been given or that you gave somebody? <laughs> worst. Oh, geez. Worst piece of advice is I was encouraged to take a position that I had a bad feeling about, right. a, a decision, and I was encouraged. And so I should have gone with my gut. Is there a book? Have you got a favorite book or an online tool or an app that, that you go to that you really rely on or have enjoyed? Wow. Online tool or book. That's drawing a bit. Oh, so an app. I do jigsaw puzzles. Oh. That's how you do that. I do on, uh, an or app online? for jigsaw. There's an app for jigsaw. What's uh, yeah. that called? I'll show it to you, but it's... Uh, I can just see it's the one that's brown. It does. It allows you to move the pieces and organize them all around that you want. No, yeah. So I do jigsaws all the time, even when I'm watching TV, keeping my keeping the brain going. Yeah. If you could go back to your graduation from vet school day, and you could just pop out of thin air, just take yourself aside and go listen, Melinda, I need to give you a piece of advice. What would that piece of advice be? Whoa don't take that job that I took that piece of advice you know my passion has I had to learn how to figure out where the proper places were for that so I think it would be the advice would be is to slow it down slow it down yeah be more snail slow it down you don't have to accomplish everything all at one time yeah patience and Slow down recurs a lot in that yeah. that advice. Okay, last question then. And imagine you probably don't spend an awful lot of time on social media with, with what you do. Perhaps you do, I don't know. No. But if you were to be able to send a, a message to our community, the wider global veterinary community, perhaps something flashing from the Wasava website, what would that message be? That message is, is to be brave. Step up and do the right thing. And, and become empowered to do that. That would be, is be brave. Because all it takes is one. That's awesome. Melinda, thank you so much for your Welcome. time. That your, was fun. Your storytelling, your, <laughs> your awesomeness. 
Appreciate fun, it. Fun, fun, fun. Wow, wow, wow. Wasn't that incredible? Thank you so much to Dr. Merck for that wonderful episode. And thank you for listening. I really, really appreciate you doing that. Now, before you jump off, you could repay the favor in one of maybe three ways. If you would shout the show out on your social media account, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, tell your friends. Tell them about the wonder, the the, the joy that is audio and how you do you. Uh, And finally, if you'd leave a, a little review on iTunes, that would be really, really appreciated. So until next time, from us on Blunt Dissection, to you wherever you are. Please be safe, be well, and be happy. Dr. Dave, out.